So I'm joined in studio by colleagues Nikki, Esme, Tracy, and a little further away in London, Tom. And we're here to discuss all things skills in the industry and related topics. So, Nikki, investor relations, uh, perhaps often an abused term. Difference between that and financial comms, financial PR, what in your view are the distinctions? Thanks, Alan. That's an interesting question and quite topical among investor relations professionals and uh, I know particularly in-house IROs work hard to guard against PR and IR. So the fundamental difference between public relations and IR is that investor relations is for a very specific group of stakeholders. It is shareholders who invariably, well, not invariably, they've definitely put capital at risk. So how you communicate with that stakeholder group needs to be balanced uh, you need to showcase the opportunities as well as the risks. And similarly, when you're talking to prospective investors, you need to give them enough information to make an informed decision on whether they want to invest in the company or not. So there's no spin and uh, there's no marketing. It's candid, clear, balanced disclosure that differentiates investor relations from public relations. And how do you train for the field? I mean, how, where do you find skilled, experienced IR experts and practitioners in the market? There isn't any formal course. I think all of us have learned it through on-the-job training. Uh, Many people just fall into the role. I don't think there's anybody that comes out of school and says, oh, I want to be an IRO. It's not well marketed as in terms of a, a role within a company or a department. Particularly in South Africa, it's not every listed entity's got an IR function. Sometimes it's been done by the C-suite or uh, somebody else in the organization where uh, employees are, are double-hatting. In the U.S., for example, it is more common. Uh, I don't think there is a listed entity without IR. In South Africa particularly, and similarly in the U.S., it's not mandatory, but you won't find a company listing in the U.S. that doesn't have an IR function. So... I know a lot of the IR associations offer some courses and some of the exchanges will also bring people up to speed in terms of what they need to know. But most commonly, it's through on-the-job training. Tracy, you know, also a perhaps misunderstood area of corporate comms, the internal function. Back in the day, internal comms, employee communications. Now we hear sort of employee engagement, employee brand. First off, what is the popular term these days? And secondly, what kind of skills are required in your discipline to mobilize, motivate, influence employees within the business? Thanks, Alan. Yeah, I think there's still a range of names afforded to this function. Depends largely on the business, the size of the business, its home base, uh, the structure of the business. But I think that what's what's the name of the department is less important than actually what makes up that that function. And what's important are the resources um, and the skills devoted to the function. And I think, like you say, it's it's typically been an area that is neglected. Um, we commonly see, and especially today, where people are having to cut back, companies are having to cut back on resources. We see that there's a multi-skilled team and that very often the most junior person in the team gets allocated to look after internal comms because after all, it's sort of viewed as just an, an internal newsletter. 
I'm pleased to say that I'm, I'm seeing that there is a change, that more and more companies are understanding that internal communications is, is a critical role. Um, if you want to get to a point where you have an, an engaged, motivated and productive workforce. Um, but that requires strategic thinking. It requires a level of business acumen. And I think it also requires some leadership ability in the internal com specialist because you're, you're talking to leaders in the business or you should be talking to leaders in the business on a daily basis. So you need to have that um, ability to engage with them and to bring them on board. Obviously, there are other skills like writing and a command of the language and um, the ability to know which channels to use to reach which audiences. And then there are also obviously softer skills, your ability to be flexible and empathy and, and, and a listening ability that, you know, listening skill. Um, those are all equally important in, in an internal communications function. But I think a lot like Nikki mentioned, um, these are a lot, in many cases, these are things that you learn on the job with, with experience. Talking about certain qualities, insights, empathy, is me, in terms of crisis leadership, uh, I would imagine things like resilience and ability to absorb some pretty devastating news day after day and be counsel and, and wise counsel to leadership. Talk to me about the skills involved and the aptitudes involved from a crisis perspective. Alan, that's a good question. So I guess if you're looking for a good crisis advisor um, and strategic counsel, you want a team who is real battleground experience because this is an emerging discipline. You know, every second agency these days are adding reputation management and, and crisis communication to their credentials, but it is a very specialized field. So you're wanting a team with that real battleground experience who has actually led crisis leadership teams um, and been the lead crisis advisor. Um, for a range of crises across sectors. You want a crisis advisor that brings tried and tested methodologies to the table, ones that develop themselves, not ones that they have pulled off Dr. Google. You want, if you're an executive team, you want a crisis advisor who has worked at your level, who understands the nuance and the dynamic in the boardroom. And they don't only understand communications, they understand the environment you as an executive are navigating. And then you're right, a successful crisis advisor needs to have resilience and expertise and mostly, most importantly, the trust and the respect of the people in the room to present the case for what is right for a business, not necessarily for what is only profitable or what is legal. And sometimes they need to be able to talk confidently and expertly against what we call the hippos, the highly paid person's opinions. And that's often where a lot of junior communications or strategic counsel, they don't have that skill. And then, Alan, working with you, it really has taught me a successful crisis advisor never stops researching and learning. It is daily practice. Like you do, I don't know of, an, like, I don't know of another crisis advisor globally who does the level of research that you do and has access to the body of precedent, setting examples for virtually every kind of crisis that we advise our clients on. I do believe this goes to the heart of why we are so trusted by our clients. But finally, I also think that the, a successful crisis advisor, um, and, and regrettably I see too little of this in our field, needs to have empathy and the insights into the human condition. 
We need to care when we walk into that boardroom. We need to provide a safe pair of hands and a safe space for the humanity in the room because you need to realize that your client is probably going through the worst time of their life and they're taking a lot of strain. So while we bring expertise on the science and the arts of the discipline, you sometimes need to know when to just quietly pull somebody aside for a moment and ask how they're doing and show them some kindness. It is something I see people overlook, but it is something our clients never forget. You point, amongst other things, to an evolving skill set that what made you strong in the sphere yesterday doesn't necessarily equip you for tomorrow. And I suppose that's an elegant segue to you, Tom. I mean, you've come out of a, a traditional media environment, very successful career in traditional media, now very immersed in the digital space. So many of the job adverts these days in our industry, it's digital, digital, digital. Do you, do you think the kind of people who are working in digital have sufficient grounding in the, in the content side of things, in some of the traditional skills? Or is that not really such a, a, a mission-critical attribute to have these days? Yeah, Ellen, I think it's a very important question to ask is, you know, in this sort of digital age, where do the foundational skills lie? And I think it's... Um, I think it's interesting. We're, we're all essentially in a digital space now. So we're, we're all having to um, relate and engage with uh, some form of digital know-how in our day-to-day jobs. So really, I think while, while you look at tools being available to us today um, and the data that's available to us today, it's absolutely immense. Access to information um, is sure, certainly not something that um, we lack. What becomes essential is translating that information, analyzing that information um, into, into formats that audiences can understand and relate to. Um, and I think that remains and, and will continue to remain an essential ingredient in, in the sort of fin- you know, final mix of, um, of messaging. Um, as business strategy becomes more digitally inclined, um, as operations become more digital, there will be a natural overlap between, you know, traditional skill sets and digital coming into the into the mix. But what will be even more important, I think, will be those um, analytical skills and certainly interpersonal skills. You know, how people relate to to other people. I think those those are also things you can't necessarily teach. They come with experience and they come with um, dealing with the right. Uh, strategic mindset. So as you build a digital team and as lots of enterprises globally, I suppose, build enhanced digital teams, I'm I'm reminded of those sort of recruitment questions, you know, would you rather fight a million ant-sized horses or one horse-sized ant? What would you rather be working with as you build a digital team? Somebody who's tech-savvy, a young digital native, but perhaps without the few years of content and nice behind them or someone like me, an absolute Luddite when it comes to tech, but perhaps got some sort of content skills under the belt. Who's going to be the, the better finished product at the end of the process? Hmm. Uh, that's quite a conundrum. I think both have their merits, to be honest. I think working with people is really what, what we need to focus on here as opposed to one or the other. I don't think there is a preference. I think it's a combination. And I think that's you know, part of the uh, one of the greatest strengths that digital brings with it is this. You know, this factor that we're all really in the same boat. We're all unpacking the same challenges and needing to look at the same problems. You know, in a different way. 
So you absolutely need to have both of those skills. You, you, you have to have the sort of, you know, fresh mindset, you know, fresh set of eyes that, that, that is looking at a problem for the first time. And you need to have, you know, experience and, and people who have come, come up against the same challenges time and again, who are then opened up to a new, a new way of seeing things. Sorry, I can't, uh, I can't give you uh, my, my absolute preference, but, um, but I think both are, are, are vital. Well, Tracy, you referenced internal comms officers, managers, often almost being the Cinderella role within companies. How does one upskill those sort of positions? And do they need digital skills as well in this new environment for things like internal Facebook pages or, or similar kind of platforms? Are you, as a senior statesman in, in, the, in the sector, are you finding yourself doing a lot of skills development for those internal comms practitioners at your clients? Yes, Alan, I think that's one of the advantages of working with an agency like APRO is that we do bring to a client a variety of skills. We, we've all worked across different industries, different sectors, large organizations, small organizations. We've, we've encountered a lot and we bring that experience to the table. In terms of what skills are missing, I mean, just to echo what Tom was saying, I think we can all agree that there is a shift in in communications. The basics are the same, your audience, your messaging um, and your channels, but it's the channels that are changing. It's important for us to know and to think creatively and innovatively, given what is available to us these days, the various options that are available. And it's quite encouraging to see, um, I do a lot of work in the mining sector and in manufacturing, and it's typically been the situation where, you know, the, the, the response has been, we can't communicate to a, a large portion of our employees because they are not electronically connected or digitally connected. And it's encouraging to see that there are companies that are making that change. I have quite a few of my clients who have now adopted an employee engagement app, which allows them to, you know, reach employees directly through their cell phones and it changes the way you can communicate with employees. You know, we've I've also just recently worked with one of my mining clients who typical old-fashioned town hall session and in the time of COVID they've changed that to a virtual briefing um, which has allowed them to do it more regularly. It gives employees some sort of confidence, anonymity in posing questions so we find that there's more engagement um, and yes, there are still complications in reaching a lot of, of the workforce, but we're finding that that number is growing. So that's quite encouraging. Um, and these are skills that I think you have to learn on the job. The training can only take you to a point. And there are courses, and we all know there are degrees and there are courses, but it can only take you to a point. You have to work out what's right for that business, for that specific audience that you're trying to reach, what it is that you're trying to communicate, whether it's something that can be done visually. Um, you know, we're seeing videos and infographics all becoming very powerful in communicating. Or is it something that still requires that face-to-face -face engagement with a line manager? Because I think that's also critical is finding that balance between virtual and digital and ongoing face-to-face -face communication. We can never lose sight of that in an internal context. So sticking with that skill story, Nikki, you know, you referenced not one single kind of career background path to, to being a good investor relations officer. What, I know you've, you're so involved in the industry. What are you doing as an industry to perhaps enhance those skills, to bring a little bit more consistency and depth to, to our skills base in that area? 
So, Alan, it's, it's interesting because everybody does investor relations differently. And one IRA, for example, in emerging markets might be a standout IRA because of the background and the environment that they're communicating in, while an IRA in the developed world will, will do investor relations differently and still be a standout IRA. So it's very dependent on the sector that you're in, uh, where the company is in its life cycle and how you communicate that uh, to stakeholders. To be honest, not much is being done to uplift the skill set required because at the heart of investor relations is, is communications. Share prices don't respond to the absolute information that gets published. They're responding to a perception gap. So the market is expecting one thing, the company communicates something else, and the share price responds to that gap. So really, when IROs begin to understand, and companies, and I think that's that's where the responsibility lies, is to understand the value of having investor relations, giving the role the gravitas that it deserves, so empowering the person to communicate, allowing them to do it in a, in a way that builds confidence and receives support. So really, I think that that lies with with companies understanding the role of investor relations and then resourcing it accordingly in order to get the best out of it. Talk about resources. Can you effectively outsource that function to consultants such as yourself? What what are the benefits of of not keeping it in-house? The benefit is that you bring best practice to the role. So what consultants do differently is that they have a number of various uh, clients in different sectors that are facing different headwinds and tailwinds. So they they bring that broad-based view of the sector and what translates into good communication and perhaps not so good. I think the key learnings come from making mistakes and consultants, well, we have the scars to prove it. So it's bringing that experience, it's bringing that bird's eye view of what is good and what is not so good. And, and you can effectively outsource your IR, provided you understand the role and you're willing to share information with a consultant that will enable them to communicate confidently about your business and your company. Esme, you know, when we talk crisis management, crisis leadership, we often are referencing the real when it hits the fan scenarios, looking for people to come and help us navigate, get us out of that. But a lot of the work you do is in trying to ensure that companies, organizations, don't find themselves in a crisis in the first place. That brings into play armor, the kind of let's build resilience, let's look at vulnerabilities. Talk to us briefly about the work you do to try and ensure that that an issue never, ever is transformed into a real-life crisis. Alan, I think you've gone to the heart of, of what we do and the value we can add to an organization. Um, very often we get called in when there is a crisis, but you're so right. So when I talk about when we go to a client, we prefer to work with them through what we believe is quite a distinctive approach to, to issue management because there is no such thing as a low-risk sector. So best you build in resilience measures into your business. We have a six-shield approach at, at Aprio Credence, which assures your reputational resilience in this high-risk world. Just briefly, our six-shield approach um, covers um, we, start, we like to start with a vulnerability and reputation threat assessment, um, and that's unique to every company and sector, um, where we work through with the team 
what are your top tier reputation risks. We then look at those reputation risks with you and we do a preparedness audit. We look at your policies, your protocols, your ways of work, and maybe if there's an operational resolve to that potential reputation um, risk. Then Shield 3 is what we believe is, is I or I believe is our silver bullet, is that masterclass training and skills development. So in an, a, a discipline or, or in an industry where the skills are having to be honed continuously, this training and skills, media training, um, your approach to social media, crisis leadership team, coaching, those are very, very important. Our fourth shield is what we call um, crisis simulation, and, and that's the real battleground stress testing of your crisis leadership team. We will take your three team through simulated crises, things they are likely to encounter in their sector, in the business, and we observe. Um, we put increasing amounts of pressure on them um, through the course of the simulation, and we observe and, and, and help them navigate that um, as if they would be in a real world environment. Once we've gone through that, we then close the gap um, or we work with the team to close the gap. And that is to build in collateral systems, early warning capabilities. And then the sixth shield only, um, which is often how we get access to an organization to do the first five shields, is then the crisis support when the actual proverbial has hit the fan um, is to com- and that is 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 we like to think of it as to complement the existing resources within that leadership um, team where we get called in for strategic counsel around reputation management and navigating your stakeholder commitments um, like the regulators your customers just court of public opinion when you're in the heat of a crisis but when you have those six shields in place at best, you will be resilient. If you don't have it in place, um, you are vulnerable, um, we believe. Tom, you know, we looked a couple of years ago when we saw the advent of digital reading devices and everyone said, all oh, books are dead and bookstores are going to be dinosaurs. And it's almost been the opposite out there. In terms of digital and this demand for increased digital communication, Certainly, I think we're all seeing signs of a bit of a pushback against big tech. Is there any sort of movement towards, hey, perhaps we've we've gone too far, that we need to be a little bit more uh, personal and, and face-to-face, or is digital still got a long way to go before there's saturation and perhaps resistance to the world of big, big tech sort of dominating our lives? Um, yeah, I think tech will continue to feed into our lives on a daily basis. It'll, it'll continue to transform our lives, probably without us noticing it uh, more and more. I think we've probably experienced the, some of the, the biggest levels of resistance already would be my, my suspicion. Um, that doesn't mean the challenges you know, aren't going to continue. But I think there's been a, uh, I, I, don't, I don't want to say reluctance, certainly not. There's, there's been an acceptance that you know, tech, digital, mindsets and thinking you know is is here to stay it's something that that we just need to shift into um and and be a part of um as opposed to to challenge so certainly when we see sort of new clients knocking on the door with a with a digital 
challenge or query uh, or concern, you know, the the initial reaction or the initial feeling uh, we of, we often get from them is is one around fear. You know, is around well, I've got this challenge. What do I do with it? It's scary. It's new, and and I'm being told that digital is the solution here, but I don't necessarily know what that means. And you know, I think what's really exciting, what's well, one of the most rewarding parts of, of, of this job and what, what we're doing at, at Aprio Digital is when you see that transition occur, the moment the sort of uh, viewpoint on a, on a challenge shifts and changes uh, and people can actually see that these problems are not necessarily new ones, but the solutions that we have to tackle them are. And it sort of changes the entire way that you, you think of um, of an issue where you ca- you suddenly have this enormous arsenal to to really you know scope out analyze and and solve the challenge rather than this daunting world of sort of digital questions and answers that have to be or boxes that have to be ticked um so yeah i think it's certainly having the ability to to engage with people having those interpersonal skills having the ability to unpack a, a human problem first um, is is vital, and I suppose given the decline of traditional media, which is not just a South African phenomenon, it's it's global. It's in the UK where you operate out of. That's not going to change, and increasingly, companies, clients are looking to see how we can get that content, how we can engage with our our stakeholders, because the old days of sending out a media release just don't work anymore. I mean, is that the reality that we've got? We've got to embrace it because that is you know, disintermediation. We've got to get the content to our stakeholders directly. Yeah, uh, I think. Yeah, I think that you've you've sort of in saying that you've summarised both the, the 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 pros and the cons of the shift. You know, while we, it is very sad that traditional media is is sort of seeing a little bit of a contraction um, or or perhaps a change in in its identity. Brands, companies are taking up the mantle and looking at themselves as, you know, really sort of analyzing whether or not they, they have the credence and the credibility to, to stand as a, a brand or a, to hold this, this, this responsibility, you know, with the, the customers and the audiences that they speak to, uh, of being responsible all the time and, and, and doing the right thing. So their channels become really you know a window directly into into how they operate i think audiences are becoming more savvy a lot more able to to see through you know any kind of misdirected uh, or or kind of overblown marketing fodder i suppose we could call it and they want to see truth they want to see thought leadership they want to see you know um, honest content um, and, and that all has to happen on you know on a brand's own channel. So I think that that is a positive. There's an interesting interplay there in keeping brands honest the closer they are to their their audiences. So there we have it. Authentic, credible, compelling communication, always going to have a place for it, whether it be internally, whether it be in a crisis situation, digitally or in the investor relations space. So thanks for your insights, Tom, Nikki, Esme, Tracy. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Aprio Voice, a podcast from the reputation, management and strategic communications professionals at the Aprio Group. If you would like to find out more about the work we do, 
visit aprio.co.za. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.